Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we just come before you this morning and just we're just so grateful for your, uh, your mercy towards us. And uh, we thank you for the rain. We thank you for those that have come this morning to worship you. And uh, likewise, I just uh, commend the, what was said earlier about every day being a day of worship. Help us to remember that, that this is not just worship Sunday, but every day is to be, for you to be worshiped. And Lord, we just, uh, we thank you for this opportunity to uh, gather, and we just ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Christmas in June. The profound faith of a simple girl and a great God. Um, If I could ask you, please, um, in honor of the reading of God's word, if you could stand. And if you turn to Luke 1, 26 through 55. Normally we talk about Mary and the Annunciation of Christ at Christmas, but I want to take time on this text in order to discuss the worship life of Mary, which weaves through this text. It's an example of Christian humility, faithfulness, service, obedience, and devotion under the guiding influence of the Holy Spirit. So don't just take this sermon aimed at faithful teenagers entering a larger, more complicated world, but for anyone who deliberately strives to honor God boldly in the face of unexpected responsibility, doubt, and confusion. I'll read. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and was pondering what kind of greeting this was. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and give birth to a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. But Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? The angel said, answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason also the, the child, the holy child will be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth herself has conceived a son in her old age, and she also was called infertile and is, is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the Lord's bondservant, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And skipping down to 46. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regard for the humble state of his bondservant. For behold, for now in all generations, he will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is to generation after generation towards those who fear him. 
He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. He has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty-handed. He has given help to his servant Israel in, in remembrance of his mercy, just as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his descendants forever. You may be seated. Known as the Annunciation or the Magnificat, the Magnificat is named after the first word of its first line in Latin, Magnificat anima mea dominium, or my soul magnifies or exalts the Lord. It's really a hymn about the incarnation. It is a song of unspeakable joy and is the most magnificent psalm of worship in the New Testament. It is the equal of any Old Testament psalm, and it bears a strong resemblance, of course, to Hannah's famous hymn of praise in the birth of Samuel. Now, it was customary in Jewish prayers to recite God's faithfulness to his people in very vivid ways. We see this in Exodus 15, Judges 5, Psalm 68, and a dozen other psalms. And I'm going to quote below from Psalm 68 so you can get a a feel for this. Again, may God arise, may his enemies be scattered, and may those who hate him flee from his presence. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts before a fire, so the wicked will perish before God. But the righteous will be joyful. They will rejoice before God. Yes, they will rejoice with gladness. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Exalt him who rides through the deserts, whose name is the Lord. And be jubilant before him. A father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in his holy dwelling. God makes a home for the lonely. He leads out the prisoners into prosperity. So Mary is following that convention here in an abbreviated fashion. She recalled how God had helped Israel in fulfillment of all God's promises. Now her own child would be the living fulfillment of God's saving promise. And in this, she takes no credit for anything good in herself. She freely confesses God as the one who has done great things for her, not vice versa. The song is all about God's greatness, his glory, the strength of his arm, and his faithfulness across the generations. Compare this with how we often slouch to the I and me in our prayer and worship. By the way, if you listen to a preacher or anyone in the media who constantly uses I and me, find someone else to listen to. Of all the extraordinary women in Scripture, no one stands out like her. On one hand, there is nothing about her that is intrinsically accomplished or amazing. Yes she, was in the, yes, she was of the royal line of David, but there were lots of folks in the royal line who were just kind of hidden. Their little secret was that they were in the line of David. But it was also a secret to everyone else, and so they remained poor and obscure. In this case, a common woman. On the other hand, there is a strength of character and faith in Mary's worship that is incredibly profound. 
which we will examine closely from different angles. Um, if you would look with me at Luke, verse 29, 28 and 29, Luke 1. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and was pondering what kind of greeting this was. Now notice that this salutation gives room for that this salutation gives no room for any pretense of paying adoration to this young girl. Similar expressions were often applied to others. Hail is the salutation given by our Lord to the women after his resurrection. She was perplexed and reasoned thoroughly what this greeting might be. Compare this to Zacharias, who initially doubted in the mission of the angel, and who required some sign before he could believe. Mary simply wondered the strangeness of what was about to happen. She does not shrink, cry out, debate, express doubt verbally, or panic here. She faced what the angel was about to tell her. Further down in Luke 148, Mary here testifies that all the generations would regard her as profoundly blessed by God. This is not because she believed herself to be any kind of saint, but because she retained grace in the Spirit to foresee the eternal implications of who this child really is and the resulting implications of salvation. Which largely comes from what? Her understanding of Scripture. And we can see here that she was quite Daniel-like in both her worship and her relation to the time in which she lived. Both were put in historical epicenters. Both were reassured by Gabriel, an archangel. And this is key. Both prayed in response to the word of God. Daniel's humble, humble prayer in Daniel 9 from, from God's word in Jeremiah immediately ushers in the unfolding of God's eternal plan for God's people in the 70 weeks prophecy. Mary's humble praise confirms and explains at a personal level God's unfolding of man's eternal salvation in the coming of Jesus Christ through her. How? Again, as she had come to understand Scripture. People, prayer and praise are always to be lined up with God's revelation. Do we pray in alignment with understanding of the eternal purposes of God? Additionally, Daniel had willingly faced the possibility of execution in Daniel 6 for praying illegally under Cyrus. Likewise, even though her pregnancy was, of course, beyond her control, Mary was bravely facing stoning, conceivably, under Deuteronomy 22, or at the very least, divorce with accompanying starvation as an outcast for getting pregnant out of wedlock. Again, were it not for the interceding angel to Joseph to reassure him. So I want to compare and contrast the godly pattern of prayer here in Daniel 9 with Mary's praise. Go with me, if you would, um, to Daniel 9. And I want to look briefly at the elements of his prayer and praise. 
first, and this is in Daniel uh, 4, we have an attitude of contrition, contrition before the true God. What is contrition? We stand before you as nothing. In fact, as one condemned. We have no claim on you. Daniel 9, 4. O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and faithfulness for those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned. We have done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, our leaders, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Now stop right there. And we're going to compare that to Mary in Luke 138. Mary, Luke 138, Behold the Lord's bondservant, or dule, a willing, she was a willing slave here. May it be done to me according to your word. Then in, for he has regarded for the humble state of his bondservant. This is an honest assessment of who I am and who he is, people, which is vital to true worship. In Daniel, there is corporate or collective guilt and direct responsibility. For Mary, it's personal acknowledgement of her sin and her state. It's two ways of getting to the same conclusion. I am nothing, you are everything. Uh, secondly, here is the invoking of God's justice. And what is, what is God's justice? It's the honest assessment of those who uh, stand against you that deserve destruction. In Daniel 9.13, All this disaster has come on us, Yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our wrongdoing and giving attention to your truth. So the Lord has kept the disaster in store and brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds which he has done, but we have not obeyed his voice. Now Mary, verse 51, he has done mighty deeds with his arm. She's channeling Isaiah here. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, and then he has sent the, way, the rich away empty-handed. Notice how both embrace and acknowledge biblical justice. It, it's a quality, it's quality as, as it is part of who God is, and they understand this. I'm sorry, people, but when we call out casually for social justice versus true justice, and we want that to be applied to us, think twice. Biblical justice means that the dispenser of justice follows the law of God. Injustice here means it is not followed. That's a fact. Social justice wants an equitable outcome. I win, you win, everyone wins. There's no one left behind, no losers. The parable of the talents in this light would be injustice. Sin, is, notice, is not a part of that equation. 
Is, is it really true, godly justice we crave? Or do we want only merciful justice? Trust me, you don't want God's pure justice alone. Justice alone means judgment, as a holy God has been offended and pay pack must be made. Which means, by the way, this auditorium could be emptied by fire in the next five seconds. What we want is, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what, what, what we should be praying for. And justice on those terms. Which involves what? Mercy. In quoting from Shakespeare's famous speech in the play, The Merchant of Venice, an apropos example of mercy in the face of justice, speaking here of mercy. But mercy is above this sceptered sway. It is enthroned in the heart of kings. It is an attribute to God himself. And earthly power will then show most like God's when mercy seasons justice. Therefore, Jew, though justice be thy plea, consider this, that in the course of justice none of us shall see salvation. We do pray for mercy, and that same prayer does teach us all to render the deeds of mercy. I have spoke thus much to mitigate the justice of thy plea. Shylock craves vengeance over his adversary, Antonio, of course, to his ultimate downfall. The plea for God's mercy, going back again to Daniel. Daniel 9.16 Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem your holy mountain. For because of our sins and the wrongdoings of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become an object of taunting to all those around us. So now, our Lord, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas, and for your sake, Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. Now Mary, in 149, for the mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is to generation after generation, towards those who fear him. He has given help to his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Just as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. People... God's mercy is not just an escaping damnation card. It's reflection of God's character that is designed to drive us to our knees in constant worship and adoration. Notice neither Daniel nor Mary desire mercy for their own sakes, but on behalf of what? Their Lord's glory. For his legacy. In the same way, we who believe are the beneficiaries of the cross and the resurrection. But isn't the main point to reflect back glory on the Son and the Father? You understand this? this is, the plea for mercy is never first person here. It is factual and aimed at God himself. 
There's no woe is me. How will I bear this? This will destroy me. Please show me mercy. Please help me. Remember, this comes from about a 13 to 14-year-old girl. Unlike in 1 Samuel 1 and 2, unlike Hannah in 1 Samuel 1 and 2, who likewise laments for, for, in her case, the lack of a child, Mary is a young girl. Not married, but a virgin. An average girl of common means from a peasant's town in a poor region of Israel. Betrothed to a working-class fiancé who earned his living as a carpenter. Mary and Joseph were both very young when they were engaged. Betrothed. She may have been as young as 12 or 13. And he not any older than 15 or 16. Such youthfulness at the time of a couple's engagement was standard for that culture. Scripture gives us little information about Mary, even less about Joseph. She was probably a native of Nazareth. Nazareth. Joseph was a son of Jacob, was a craftsman, a carpenter, probably a carpenter. <laughs> Most significant, okay. <laughs> To wake you up there. <laughs> Most significant, he was a just man who placed a saving trust in the coming Messiah. He was a common laborer. He made plows, staves, sticks, tables, and chairs. We are shown in 1 Samuel 1.17 that it was Eli the priest who reassured Hannah in her miraculous birth announcement. Here Gabriel explains the virgin will conceive without a man and God himself will create in her womb a child who will be the son of the Most High, given the throne of his father David. He will have a kingdom over the house of Jacob and a kingdom that has no end, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Since the hour of the Annunciation and her own meek, faithful, but enduring acceptance of God's purpose, she demonstrates the immediate influence of the Spirit of the Lord in her life. She was nothing, one of no renown. Yet God took special delight in raising up others from nothing. William Booth was a Christian missionary born into poverty who worked in the midst of horrendous London slums most of his 92 years. He was given the title the prophet of the poor. He is best known today as founder and the first general of the Salvation Army. The son of a London grifter and ne'er-do-well, at his death, 40,000 attended his funeral. 150,000 filed by his casket, including Queen Mary. You may remember the slave of Naaman's wife. God used this young girl, this nobody, who served as the wife of Naaman, the commander of Syria's army in 2 Kings 5. 2 Kings 5.2 tells us that she was an Israelite slave who got captured by Aramean raiders. So she was not only working for her enemy, 
but also serve the household of the very person who commanded those who enslaved her. One could easily imagine her hatred towards her masters. However, when she saw how Naaman suffered because of his leprosy, she kindly told his wife about what she believed Elisha could do. If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he will cure him of his leprosy. This caused Naaman to set off on a journey that ended with him getting healed and believing in Israel's God to be the only true God. You see, people, God specializes in shaping the nobodies of this life into ambassadors for his son. In fact, Francis Schaeffer wrote a book called No Little People. Most Christians take an honest look at themselves and conclude in their limited talents, energy, knowledge, means they really don't amount to much in the kingdom. But it's exactly that weakness, the significance of our humanness, our humanity, that matters in relationship to the infinite and personal God. Blessed are who? The poor in spirit, for they will see God. With that, I'd like to look at the uh, character qualities of Mary. First is her humility. In her humility, Mary maintains a consistently low profile in the gospel accounts of Jesus' life. If you had met Mary before her firstborn son was miraculously conceived, you wouldn't have noticed her at all. She could hardly have been plainer and more unassuming, and yet she found herself unexpectedly thrust into a critical role in God's redemptive plan. She was apparently nothing and understood that significance as does Jesus which we find in Luke 10 Luke 10:17 Now the 72 returned with joy saying Lord even the demons are subject to you us in your name He said to them I watched Satan fall from heaven like lightning Behold, I have given you authority to walk on snakes and scorpions and authority over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. It's not about me and the ownership of my blessing. It's about him, that he rescues me from certain destruction. Of course, the disciples didn't get it, as they later clamor for glory in Mark 10, 37 to 45, to which Jesus responds, And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The second quality of Mary is fidelity. Another standard aspect of Jewish betrothal was its binding nature. Society considered the man and the woman legally married, even though the formal ceremony and consummation might occur a year later. The purpose of the engagement period 
was to confirm each partner's fidelity when the two had little or no social contact with each other. Mary and Joseph faithfully abstained from sexual relations with one another during the engagement period as the contract required. This was also in accord with the Bible's high regard for sexual purity and God's commands for sexual abstinence prior to the marriage ceremony and sexual fidelity afterwards. Thus, Mary's virginity was an important indicator of her godliness. Otherwise, Joseph would know the child was not his. She would be an outcast, as we talked about, unable to have anyone believe her, possibly stoned. However, Mary's virginity protected something far more important. It ensured the deity of Christ and supported the veracity of his teaching and works as the Son of God. Had Jesus been conceived by natural means with Joseph or anyone else as his father, he would not have been God and would not have been the true savior of sinners. Third quality um, is faithfulness. In spite of the fears, despite the questions, she willingly submitted to God's plan. In verse 38, she said to the angel Gabriel, Behold, a bondservant of the Lord, be it done to me according to your word. A bond slave, or doule, meant she considered herself a voluntary slave for life. She submitted herself completely before her Lord. Some women would have boasted. Some women might have rebelled. She modestly, quietly embraced God's will for her and left any concerns with God. May it be according to your word. See it done. See it done. And then she went immediately, verse 39, to visit Elizabeth, and God blessed her with confirmation. But... Notice it was the faith that preceded the independent confirmation. Then with all her doubts erased, all her questions having been answered, her faith settled on solid rock. In verse 46, she bursts out into praise. In 1 Samuel 1, 9 through 15, Hannah desperately wanted a child to offer up in service to her Lord. While she quietly prayed, as her lips were moving, she was accused of drunkenness. No, my Lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do we understand what it means to pour out our soul before the Lord? on his terms? Or do we take him so for granted he becomes silly putty who exists to simply fulfill all my life's ambitions? Mary hears a word from the Lord. She believes it. She submits to it. She praises God for it. She acts upon it. She acts upon it the consequence, leaving her concerns with God and bursts forth in praise. She is an example here of pure worship and should be, which should be the goal of every believer. 
It's clear this 14-year-old girl had her heart and mind literally saturated with the Old Testament Word of God. To young people in this congregation in particular, what are you reading? What are you studying? What do you spend your day thinking about? The Psalms quoted here in her praise, beginning with Psalm 146, contains repeated echoes of Hannah's prayers. The Psalm that Mary pours out here contains numerous references to the law, to the Psalms, to the writings of the prophets. She knew her Old Testament. It's a great testimony not only to her own life and her devotion, it's a great testimony to her parents and how they had raised her to love the Word of God. And it's not as if before offering praise, she was able to go out and find a concordance so she could bring together the assorted verses. They flew from her, from within her, as testimony that the Holy Spirit resided in her. She starts out in verse 46 by saying, My soul doth magnify the Lord, which is an echo of Psalm 34 too. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord as well as 146. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord my soul. I will praise the Lord while I live. Verse 47, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, which echoes Isaiah 45, 21. There is no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior. Verse 48, he has regarded the lowest state of his handmaid. 1 Samuel 1, 11. If thou wilt indeed look upon the infliction of thine handmaid and remember me and not forget thy handmaid. The words of Hannah. It's also reminiscent of Psalm 136.23. Who remembered us in our low estate? For his mercy endures forever. Again in 48, she says, Behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. Which echoes the words of Leah in Genesis 30, verse 13. Happy am I, for the daughters will call me blessed. Verse 49, she says, he, has, he is mighty who has done great things in me, in me great things. At, uh, Psalm 126.3, the Lord has done great things for us, whereof, whereof we are glad. And then in 49, she says, holy is his name, quoting directly Psalm 111.9. Holy and reverent is his name. And so it goes that she rightly divides the word of God and applies it to her own situation as Paul commends Timothy to do, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a worker who does not need to be ashamed. She understands the history of Israel. She understands how God has exercised his mighty arm in verse 51 and how in the past he has scattered the proud. He has brought down rulers. He exalts the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, sent the rich away empty-handed. She understands how through the history of Israel, God has helped Israel, verse 54, and done so in remembrance of his mercy promised in verse 55 by the Abrahamic covenant. So she was not just familiar with scripture per se, she understood the importance of God's covenant and his promises with man. She understands the theology of the Abrahamic covenant. She understands that it was an eternal pledge made to Abraham by which generations would be blessed. She's familiar with theology. She has read, she has memorized, she has meditated on the sacred scripture, 
And when her heart, her, her heart birthed forth in praise, it wasn't trivial. It wasn't theatrical. It wasn't self-invented. Scripture poured out of her mouth. It was the language of Scripture showing her alacrity, her facility, her familiarity with the text in a deeply personal way. Go with me over, if you would, to Matthew 12, 33 to 37. the words of Jesus. Either assume the tree to be good as well as its fruit good, or assume the tree to be bad as well as its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You offspring of vipers, how can you, being evil, express any good things? For the mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. The good person brings out of his good treasure good things, and the evil person brings out of his evil treasure evil things. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they will give an account on the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. When Mary spoke, it reflected that her heart was filled with God's word. And no word was wasted in her praise of God. When we speak to one another, or to God, is it apparent how our heart is filled with God's word? Or even what is in our heart? Later down in uh, Matthew 15, 22, a Canaanite woman from that region came and began to cry out, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. He did not answer her even a word as his disciples came up and urged him, saying, Send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and began to bow down to him, saying, Lord, help me me and he had he answered and said it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs and she said yes lord but please help for even the dogs feed on the crumbs that fall from their master's table then jesus said to her oh woman your faith is great it shall be done as you desire and her daughter was healed at once A woman here of faith who rose above being an outcast, a nobody, an alien to the covenants of God, humility, fidelity, faithfulness, courage, courage. Um, I want to show you just three additional things as we close. 
that we learned about worship from Mary. Number one is the attitude of worship. What I'm about to say, this is not legalism, theatrics, or Pentecostalism. There are distinct qualities found in the tenor of worship common to many in Scripture who are worshiping in spirit and truth. There's a commonality there. Mary is a perfect illustration of the attitude of worship. There are three subpoints of this that unfold this attitude. One is worship is internal. You'll notice in verse 46 that Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord. In verse 47, my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Deeper down than her mouth, deeper down than her lips, was her soul and her spirit. Those terms really are interchangeable in Scripture because they have to do with the inner person. She summons up. She uses them both to sort of to emphasize how whole this is in her inner person. Her whole inner being, mind, emotion, she sums it all up. All of her mental faculties, all of her emotional feelings, all of those elements of her being on the inside are called together like the instruments in a great orchestra that comes together in a crescendo of praise, bubbling up from deep within her. So yes, worship begins with an attitude, the attitude of adoring praise. External, shallow, superficial observance is consistently shown in Scripture to be an abomination to God. Isaiah 29, 13. This people draws near me with their mouth and with their lips. Do they honor me, but have removed their heart from me? This is a dishonor to God. Jesus said God is a spirit and they worship him, must worship him in spirit and truth. We've talked about that. Secondly, it's intense in that it magnifies. In verse 46, she says, My soul exalts the Lord. Some translations would say makes great, magnifies. The word here is essentially mega, megalione, to enlarge, to cause something to swell, to grow. It is used for the word great or large, and it also implies intensity here. And then the word rejoices in verse 47. My spirit has rejoiced. It means to be overjoyed. It's another word of hyperbole again. It's another word that means to have an exceeding joy, as it is translated in one case, unspeakable joy, loud joy, grandiose joy. You see the pattern here. Intense focused worship is, is not something that takes some kind of external inducement to generate. It is something that comes from the heart on the contemplation of what God was doing in Mary's life. Now, in contrast to that, all you have to do is go back and read Malachi. In the first chapter of Malachi, verse 7 through 10, a son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? says the Lord of armies to you. The priests who despise my name, but you, but you say, how have we despised your name? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar, but you say, how have we defiled you? 
In that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised, and then you present a blind animal for sacrifice. Is it not evil? Or when you present a lame or sick animal, is it not evil? So offer it to your governor. Would he be pleased with you, or would he kindly receive you, says the Lord of armies? But now, do indeed plead for God's favor so that he will be gracious to us. With such an offering on your part, he will receive you kindly, says the Lord of armies. If only there was one among you who would shut the gates so that you would not kindle fire on my altar for nothing. I am not pleased with you, said the Lord of armies, nor will I accept an offering from your hand. God indicts the Jewish community, the people, because they were bringing him polluted sacrifices. Instead of bringing the spotless lamb, they were bringing lame ones, the worst of their flock. Their whole worship, all their sacrifices, was a travesty of superficiality. And God in Malachi says, you don't think this, this pleases me, do you? You don't think I'm accepting that, do you? Try offering that to your governor when it's time to pay your taxes and see how he likes it. If he wouldn't accept it, why should I? The prophet Amos, the herdsman of Tekoa, sent by God to expose and denounce the apostasy and hypocrisy of Israel, said essentially the same thing in Amos 5. Speaking for God, he says, I hate your feasts, I despise your festivals and your ceremonies. I don't want your burnt offerings, your meat offerings. I don't want your songs. Stop singing your songs. Stop playing your harps. It makes me sick. It's also superficial and shallow. Isaiah, of course, in, in one chapter 1 confirms this when he talks about, I am full of your burnt offerings and rams and fat of dead beasts. I don't delight in the blood of bullocks or lambs or goats. Don't bring any more oblations to me. Your incense is an abomination. It's all iniquity, even your solemn meetings. My soul hates your new moons, your feast days, and you are a trouble to me. I am weary of it all, and so on, and so on, and so on. In contrast to all this was Mary, who loved God down in the deep of her heart, and who knew the truth about God and about who knew and who knew her God well. And who in response to this great mercy of God, this kind blessing of God, to make her the mother of the Messiah, and to bring into the world the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God, the great glorious King, just bursts out in praise. And it isn't just that she's thankful for what God is doing for her, but what's going to be available to mankind through the Messiah's arrival, people. She's filled with joy, and her praise is internal and intense. Is your worship intense? I don't mean theatrical again. I mean, do we worship from the depths of our soul? It all starts with a proper understanding of who I am and who God is. The third thing about true worship is that it's habitual. Going back to verse 46, where you have a present tense verb magnifies or exalts, and you stretch that a little bit, there's a present tense verb meaning continuous action. 
Here is someone who in the flow of life, praising God in an unbroken fashion, it flows on uninterrupted. Fluctuating circumstances do not impact true worship, people. Because no, because no matter what happens to you or to me, circumstantially, it doesn't change God. It doesn't change his word. It doesn't change his purposes. It doesn't change his promises. It doesn't change our responsibility. That's why the Apostle Paul said in Thessalonians 5, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In every faith give thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not utterly reject prophecies, but examine everything. Hold firm to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be kept complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In everything give thanks, it says in Romans 14.8, Paul said he had learned whatever state he was in to be content. He learned in every situation to be thankful. His whole life was a magnification of the Lord. If I live, I live for the Lord. If I die, I die to the Lord. Whether I live or die, I am the Lord's. Nothing ever changed that. It was unwavering. And that's the way life should be. That's why James 4, 6 says, God resists the proud. God gives grace to the humble. Pride stands in the way of true worship. I think Howard had a, a morning minute on that this week. Only two things hinder true worship. One is ignorance, two is pride. Proud people can't be thankful because they never get what they think they deserve. No matter what they get. They constantly remember all the wrongs done to them. Proud people struggle with being true worshipers of God because they want to strike back at everyone who offends them. And they develop a hard crust. Imagine how Mary must have felt when she was told by an angel that she would be the parent of the long-awaited Messiah. How do you think you would respond? Well, you'd no doubt find the responsibility overwhelming and intimidating. You might, you might be constantly overcome with worry. You might even attempt to respectfully decline the position altogether if maybe God could be talked into it. That's why Mary's response to the angel's prophecy in Luke 28 to 35 is so remarkable. She reacts with grace, wisdom, and the spiritual maturity of a seasoned believer. Circling back to the beginning of the story, which I neglected to read, I want to fill in a gap. Mary, she was filled with joy and bubbling over with praise due to Gabriel's visit, hurried to the hill country to visit her relative, Elizabeth. Now, there's no suggestion that Mary went for any other reason than she wanted a kindred spirit with which to share her faith. The angel had explicitly informed Mary about Elizabeth's pregnancy. It was natural for her to seek out a close relative 
who was both a strong believer and also expecting her first child by miraculous means as well. While Elizabeth was much older, possibly in her 80s, Mary was at the beginning of life, both having been supernaturally blessed by God to conceive. It was a perfect situation for two women to spend time rejoicing together in the Lord's goodness. This story is precious at many different levels. To those couples out there who may have had trouble conceiving, you can relate to this. Am I ever going to have a child? Where is God at this time? Am I drawn to him during times like this? Or do I push him away? Scripture says, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of greeting reached my ears, the baby leapt in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. Elizabeth's message was prophetic, of course, but Mary understood that perfectly. Mary was consumed by the wonder of his grace to her. She seemed amazed that an absolutely holy God would do such great things for one as undeserving as she. People, I implore you, if you remember nothing else from this sermon, please carve that statement in your heart. This is not the prayer of one who claimed to be conceived immaculately, without the corruption of original sin. It was, on the contrary, the glad rejoicing of one who knew God intimately as her Savior. Which uh, brings me to Mary's legacy. As we have seen, Mary herself never claimed or pretended to be anything other than a humble handmaiden of the Lord. She was extraordinary because God used her in an extraordinary way. She clearly thought of herself as such. She herself never made any pretense of being an administrator of any divine agenda and never gave anyone any encouragement to regard her as a mediatrix in the dispensing of divine grace. While acknowledging that Mary was the most extraordinary of women, it is appropriate to inject a word of caution against the common tendency to elevate her behind Scripture. She wasn't a demigoddess or creature that somehow transcends the rest of her race. The point of her blessedness is not that we should think of her as someone to whom we can appeal for blessing, but rather that she was supremely blessed by God. Unfortunately, even in our era. Mary, not Christ, is a central focus of worship and religious affection for millions. They think of her as a more approachable and more sympathetic than Christ. After all, wouldn't someone rather relate to a sweet mother figure than a demanding father figure? One last point I want to make is this. 
Mary isn't the only religious figure subject to modern veneration. As you're probably aware, we are preparing ground to bring on a new pastor teacher. We must be careful to keep him from this fate. Do not expect this person to be David Jeremiah or Mark Dever or Howard or Norm Geisler or John MacArthur or Al Mohler or fill in the blank. He will be his own flawed self, needing our prayers. We should never elevate any religious figure above their station, which in every case, which is in every case, a wretched sinner called out to serve God and shepherd as his conscience demands under God's mercy and grace. And so in partnering with this person, we are not absolved from our responsibility as a flock to continue studying to rightly divide the word, to labor over the most difficult passages of Scripture ourselves by the light of midnight oil, with humility as we strive to achieve a clear grasp of the text, its meaning, and its application. It was true for Mary, it's true for us. That said, it's truly regrettable that religious superstition turned Mary into an idol. Were she alive, she would be worthy to emulate, but she would also be appalled to think anyone would pray to her, venerate her images, or burn candles in homage to her. It is good she knows nothing of this. Her life and her testimony point us consistently to her son. He was the object of her worship and must be of ours. He is the one she recognized as Lord, as we should. He was the one she trusted for everything. Mary's own example, seen in the pure light of Scripture, teaches us to do the same. Close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this word of hope. We thank you for those in Scripture that are often overlooked, who are deeply important to you. We think of those in our body, those that we know that are struggling um, with many different things, health, depression, um, loss of loved ones. Um, we just we pray for them, and we thank you that there's no one that is beyond your grasp, no one that is beyond your reach, no one that is too low for you to love and bring to yourself. And Lord, we just ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.